Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. I titled, you know, we're in Jonah, and uh, I titled this morning's message, uh, Wake Up, You Sleeper. Wake Up, You Sleeper. I'm not referring to those of you gathering online this morning, uh, although some of you may be in your pajamas. If it fits, you can wake up as well. But, um, but uh, actually, that'll make more sense as we get into the text today. We're actually studying through the book of Jonah. And, uh, you know, this weekend uh, in the U.S., this is the weekend which we um, annually uh, commemorate and we celebrate the, the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. And, uh, and it's not a, an insignificant thing. It's, it's something we should always be aware of, but it's, this is one of those, you know, it's a weekend, it's a holiday, and, and that's why we, we have um, this time of commemoration. And so this week, in light of that, I was reading a, uh, the transcript of a sermon that Dr. King preached back in 1961 uh, to uh, the Council of Churches in Detroit. And uh, I found some amazing parallels in there that I wasn't necessarily expecting to our text in Jonah today. And what I found is that what I believe that God wants to speak to his church today and what God was doing in his people in the 700s B.C., and what he was doing through the life of Dr. King in, in 1960s is, uh, is remarkably parallel. And so we'll get, I'll get I'm going to read you an excerpt from Dr. King's message a little bit later this morning. But for now, we're going to jump into Jonah. And um, I'll start with a little recap of where we left off. If you weren't here last week, last week was the kind of the orientation message for Jonah. We're going to be in the series for eight weeks. So if you weren't here or you didn't watch that online, I'd encourage you this week to go back and, and, and pick up that video online because it's the foundation of where we're going to be these next eight weeks. I'll do a brief recap right now, but, um, but the, that message would be helpful as far as that orientation. So I'll start by putting up a map. Let's put up a map that this sort of captures the, the background of Jonah And I'll start with what we know about Jonah, the story, and the man. So Jonah is the story of a Jewish prophet uh, who lived and ministered in Israel in uh, about the 700s BC, okay? And um, he lived, if you look at the map, he lived near that that middle red dot that's labeled Joppa. And um, what we know about him is that he lived in a time when Israel's leadership and Israel as a nation uh, were, were experiencing a time of corruption, uh, the, the king who was leading the people, Jeroboam too, we saw this last week, he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so therefore the people who he was leading, they also continued the evil that had been uh, put in motion by Jeroboam II's predecessors. And so it was a time of corruption and kind of spiritual decline. Think about spiritual decline. That's what was happening in Israel at the time. And uh, nevertheless, God had spoken through Jonah. Jonah was his prophet. So Jonah was supposed to bring the word of the Lord to the people. And God had spoken a very positive word, uh, an, an undeservedly gracious word, a, um, an, an unearned, kind, unearned kind word to the people. 
And God had encouraged them to actually expand their borders, to recapture territory that had been taken by their enemies. And, and, then, and then God met them there when they, when they did that. And so um, God, Jonah had been, in fact, an agent of grace in speaking and extending God's mercy and favor to his people. But that was not the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, we find God sending his prophet Jonah on a new assignment. This time he's sending Jonah to speak his message to a foreign nation, actually the nation of Assyria, which uh, if you look on your map there, it has that green dot where God is telling him to go. That's why it's green. Go here. He's sending him to, to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. Okay, this is a foreign nation, and um, it's about 500 miles to the northwest over land. Uh, so if you think about uh, that distance, that's about the same distance as Boise to Seattle. So um, God's sending him there, and, uh, and, and Jonah decides on a different plan than going to Nineveh. He instead heads west, and so looking at the other red dot there on the left of your, left of your map, it says Tarshish with a question mark. It's because we don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but basically historians say Tarshish was the furthest west in, in the known world at that time. And it's somewhere actually off the map. That's why it just, there's just an arrow heading that direction. So um, Jonah heads west over the Mediterranean Sea towards Tarshish. And just to be clear, that is not an indirect route to Nineveh. You see that, right? That's not the scenic route to Nineveh. He's not just taking his time. This is, this is, the, uh, this is the first century or the seventh century prophet uh, equivalent of, of a one finger salute when God said, here's what I want you to do. He's like, no, I'm actually going to do something very, very opposite. And the question we ended with last week was why? The question we said was, why did he reject God's assignment? Why did he flee the opposite direction? And we saw that the main reason was fear. And it's not the fear that one would expect. If you're familiar with the Assyrian Empire from historical sources, if you're familiar with the historian or with the Assyrian Empire in the 7th and 8th century and what they were uh, known for, what they were capable of, what they celebrated and boasted in, you think, well, he's, yeah, he's probably afraid, afraid of, their, of their violence because they were known to be a very violent people they, and they boasted of their cruelty. They boasted of how they treated the, the nations that they conquered. And so, in fact, historians have, have actually referred to the Assyrian Empire as, as a terrorist state, if that just kind of evokes that sort of emotion in you. So it would make sense if that's why Jonah was afraid to go. But what Jonah will tell us when we get to chapter four, and that may have, in fact, been a factor, I imagine it was, but he says, what I was afraid of was not of the violence of the Assyrians, I was afraid of the mercy of God. And what Jonah tells us is that he liked... He liked when God gave an, uh, a gracious message to his people, when God spoke through him to bring a gracious message, an undeservedly kind and forgiving message to his people, people like him, he liked that. But when God was, was on the verge of extending mercy and kindness to another people, he wasn't that enthusiastic about it. What we find is that, is that Jonah was afraid, and he says, I was afraid that if the people repented, that you would relent. In fact, he says, I wasn't just afraid of that. I knew. I knew that if they repented, you would be gracious and kind, quick to forgive, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And Jonah says, I don't want anything to do with that because they don't deserve that. He wanted them to get what they deserved, which was judgment. So um, 
That's why he's not going. He gets on a boat headed to Tarshish towards the end of the known world, somewhere off the map. And as we pick up the story, that's where Jonah is. He's on a boat heading that way. All right, let's turn to Jonah chapter one, verse four. But the Lord hurled, I love this word. So I use this translation for this reason. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God, pay attention to that, cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. There's word hurled is used twice here. I suspect it was used one more time in the middle of this violent sea storm. I imagine there was some hurling going on besides what, what God did and what they did. I think I just, it's not in the text, but I'm pretty sure it's there. But we're just going to pause right there and address some of the questions. So first of all, who are the mariners? You guys know who the mariners are, right? They're, they're not a baseball team from Seattle. 500 miles away. No. No, the mariners, so here's who these are. These, these, the text doesn't say this, but here's what hist- history would tell us. These are Phoenician sailors. So this is a new people group that we haven't yet encountered. The Phoenicians operated the merchant fleets and controlled all of the trading in the Mediterranean at this time. So for example, Israel, that was right on the, the western coast or, uh, or the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, the Israel did not have their own fleet. They didn't have their own ships. When they needed uh, any sort of shipping done, they contracted that out to the Phoenicians. So if you think about like even Solomon, when his temple was built, we read about that in, in the books of Kings. When, when Solomon's temple was built, uh, he relied on the king of Tyre to bring all of the building materials he needed. Well, Tyre was the leading city-state of the Phoenicians. He, that was the king of the Phoenicians who provided that. And so as, they, as he gets on this boat, he's getting on this ship that's operated by these, uh, these sailors. And they had kind of a, a, a monopoly. They were kind of like, I mean, you could think of them as the, the Amazon fleet of the 7th century BC, only they had a monopoly. So when he gets on a boat, he's getting on a Phoenician boat. So uh, the men on the ship, they take uh, Jonah on board. Um, th- these guys are experienced sailors who spend their lives basically making the circuit from one side of the Mediterranean to the other. And it's a circuit that would take anywhere from two to three years. And so think about that. These guys, these guys are experienced sailors who live on the water. And yet, as we look into this next text, we're going to see that, um, that, they are, that they're not worshipers of Yahweh, but they are people who are spiritual. So a couple things we know. We know they're Phoenician merchant sailors. We know they're not worshipers of Yahweh, but they are spiritual. We heard that when they said, then the text says that they cried out, each cried out to his own God. So the Phoenicians, here's what we know about them. Uh, they were a very polytheistic people, as most people were, besides the, the Jewish nation at this point. The, the Jewish nation was a monotheistic people, but most all of the re- religions around them were polytheistic. And so that means they have many gods with a, a little g, little g gods. So they had household gods. They had patron gods that were the gods over their trade. So there would have been a god over, over uh, those who worked on the sea, those who were sailors. They had gods over death, gods over life, gods over various aspects of creation. They had lots of little gods. And in this moment of crisis, it was to these various gods that each sailor was crying out. And they were hoping, what they were hoping is that one of them had a god who was powerful enough and willing enough to intervene in their situation. 
And here's what they believe. They believe that this storm that has come upon them is of some sort of divine origin. They don't know exact, and, and it, the text doesn't tell us why they think this, but it's very clear that they think a God has sent this storm upon them. Perhaps because it's abnormally violent, perhaps because of how quickly it arose. But twice in the text that we're going to see in, a, in the next few verses, they're going to call this an evil storm, and they're trying to figure out which God has sent this, and they're hoping that one of their gods is powerful enough to intervene. Okay? So they're, again, they're religious, they're spiritual, not necessarily, well, they're not worshipers of Yahweh, right? That brings us to our final point about these sailors. They are terrified by the present storm, and they are desperate to do something to change it. Terrified and desperate. We can see they're desperate in their actions, right? Each one is calling out to his God or his gods to save them. We see it in, so we hear it in, what, in their words. We see it in their actions. Because what do they start to do? They start throwing the cargo overboard, right? That's an act of desperation that might not be all that helpful in the future, okay? It takes them a, a two years to three years to make a full circuit. They just left the easternmost port with their boat full of cargo, and they just threw all the cargo overboard, okay? This is, the, the, in terms of what this does to them economically, they just sabotaged all of their paychecks for, at least for the next year, Right? So they're, they're desperate. They think this storm is going to take them out. We find that they perceive it to be no ordinary storm. Again, they call it evil. And they perceive it to be of divine origin. And so they're desperate. And they're trying everything they know. I don't want you to miss this. These sailors that are in the same boat as Jonah, they're desperate about the crisis they're in. And they are trying everything they know. So meanwhile, where's Jonah? We turn to verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the captain doesn't think that Jonah's God is responsible. He's just hoping that Jonah's God can intervene. Jonah's God or God's. So the sailors are desperately fighting the storm. Jonah is asleep. He's clueless. He's indifferent. And he seems to, be, to not care about the fact that his disobedience to God has put the lives of other people in danger. It's negatively impacted others. And he seems to be pretty cold-hearted about it. I mean, they're literally in the same boat. I mean, sometimes we talk about being in the same boat. They're literally in the same boat, and he's not doing anything about it. He's the only one not bringing his faith to help. This is the convicting thing for Jonah. He's the only one not bringing his faith to help. So that's what's going on below the deck. I think, by the way, I think it's, there, there's some irony in this book. There's some irony in this chapter. There's some irony throughout the book. But you hear this we might call him a pagan captain. I'm, I'm confident Jonah would have thought of him as a pagan captain. And he's critiquing this prophet of God for not bringing his faith to bear in this crisis that they're in. He said, we're all doing what we know to do and you're not bringing your faith to bear. You're not praying out to your God. You're not doing anything. So that's going on below the deck. I don't know where, I mean, maybe they were tossing out the cargo and they found Jonah asleep. I don't know what that looked like, but... Um, 
he's kind of bleary-eyed and wakes up. Meanwhile, here's what's going on. The, the sailors, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? Now, here's what happens. The sailors apply their worldview to understand the calamity that they're in. In their worldview, some capricious God has sent this on them and they, and they want to know who's, who did it. And so God actually meets them there. God meets them in the way that they interpret their world and he uses their process of casting lots to point the finger on Jonah. And he's like, ask this guy. And you can hear the fear and the desperation. Here's these veteran sailors. You can hear the fear in their voices as they pepper Jonah with questions. Let's, let's listen to questions again. They, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And Jonah responds with this. Jonah 1 verse 9. I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, although he's not worshiping him this day, <laughs> right? Or he wouldn't be on the boat. Worship is more than our songs. It's our actions. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were even more afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them so. <laughs> I love that. They knew it because he told them. Here we find Jonah telling them about Yahweh. Now, they don't, they don't know this monotheistic God of Israel, and so he doesn't talk about him by name. He talks about them in language. He actually, he's, well, here's what I love about Jonah in this moment. He just became an accidental missionary, right? I mean, I, I was thinking about, there was a, a movie several years ago, maybe decades ago, called The Accidental Tourist, I don't remember the movie, but I, I was reading this time. Like, he's like an accidental tourist, but he's an accidental missionary. Because it, when they're asking him where he comes from and which God he worships, he has to put it into their language. So he doesn't say Yahweh. He says, well, I worship the, uh, the God of the heavens, which is everything over creation, who made the sea that they're on and also the dry land that they're not on. Okay? To be clear, that's everything. I worship the God who made everything. You see the irony? Jonah's fleeing God because he doesn't want to share that God is both powerful and just, but he's also merciful and kind. That he's quick to forgive. That he's quick to relent. He doesn't want to share that with people that are not like him. With people that look differently, think differently, believe differently, act differently. He likes sharing that with his people. He doesn't want to share that with a foreign nation. And here he is going to another people group that he would have clearly despised them as well. <laughs> he doesn't want to share with them. And here he is having to tell a group of pagan Phoenician sailors whom he's at best indifferent to about his God. He just became a missionary. God said, oh, you want to go that direction? That's, that's okay. I want those guys too. So how do they respond? 
they become even more afraid. This God that Jonah just described, this God who Jonah proclaims to be, and the evidence seems to back it up, that he's the God over everything. If this, if this is true, well, then they're in trouble. Because what if their gods can stand against that? We know a little bit about the gods of the Phoenicians, the idols, the little g gods of the Phoenicians from history. Let me give you a, 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 just a little sampling of their pantheon. Uh, the gods of the Phoenicians, we know that they worshipped El. That was the head of their pantheon. Asherah was his wife. Yam was the sea god. Mot was the god of death. Yahir was the moon god. Shapsh was the sun god. Reshef was the god of pestilence. Eshmun was the god of healing. Melquart was the city god of Tyre, the god of all maritime activity. These are the gods they're calling to, these gods and others. These are, these are some of the gods in their pantheon. They're also calling out to their household gods, their, the, the deities, the patron deities over their trades. These are who they're calling out to. And Jonah says, well, I worship the god who made everything. Can we put that next slide up? Yahweh, right? This is, this is what they're understanding at this point. We're going to stop there for today in our text. I'm not done with the message, but that's where we're going to stop in the text. You have to come back next week to find out what, how they respond. I mean, if you want to spoil it, you can read ahead. <laughs> it's just the next few verses in Jonah, right? You can read ahead. Or even better, though, you can uh, engage in this week's devotions. You know, Pastor Mike writes daily devotions for us. You can get them from, through our website. You can get them emailed to you or you can get them as a podcast. You can also find that link on our website if you don't know that. But Pastor Mike writes daily devotions for us that are little, little uh, snippets of where we're gonna be the following Sunday. And they're designed to just keep us engaged and, and asking um, and engaging with God throughout the week on the text we're gonna be in the following week. So if you want to know what happens with these sailors, you can um, read ahead or listen ahead. But uh, what we're going to spend today, the rest of today is on our timeless takeaway. Here's our timeless takeaway for the day. We don't have to agree with people in order to love people. I don't have to agree with people in order to love people. You don't have to agree with people in order to love people. We... We don't have to agree with people in order to love people. Let's say that together. We don't have to agree with people in order to love people. Let's try it one more time because that was kind of... We don't have to agree with people in order to love people. Very good. What the book of Jonah shows us is that God loves people without agreeing with their beliefs, without affirming their choices, without agreeing with their actions, or lifestyles. God loves people. This is in line with what we're told in the New Testament about Jesus, who is in fact, here's what we're told about Jesus. He's the exact image of the invisible God. God the creator is invisible. Jesus came to show us what he's like. He made the invisible God visible. And what we see in Jesus is that Jesus loved people without agreeing with them. Romans 5.8 puts it this way. But God demonstrates his love makes his love visible. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows us his love, his undeserved kindness, his unearned mercy by loving us 
sacrificially, by loving us at great cost to himself while we were opposed to him, while we were his enemies, while we believed differently, thought differently, acted differently, while we were living lives opposed to him, he brought sacrificial love to us. Eugene Peterson describes Jesus' incarnation as he came to our neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood to show us the love and mercy of God. This is the kind of love that changes lives. This is the kind of love that changes worldviews, belief systems. This is the kind of love that changes destinies. I want to repeat that. This kind of love, love given freely, love given sacrificially, this changes destinies. Love given freely is what leads to repentance, to change lives, changed hearts, changed minds. Jesus doesn't withhold his love until we repent and change. He loves us surprisingly and sacrificially. And this kind of love, when truly received, this kind of love is what leads to repentance and change. Here's the thing. Jesus died on the cross to secure forgiveness and new life for all who put their faith in him. It wasn't because he agreed with our beliefs or affirmed all the things we were doing. Think about your own story. When God met you, was it because he agreed with all you were doing? Wasn't, I wasn't. <laughs> this, is, this is God's way. So not only do we not have, to love, or not have to agree with people in order to love people, Jesus. Jesus didn't have to agree with people in order to love people. In fact, let me put it in the positive Jesus didn't agree with people, and he loved them. He didn't affirm everything they were doing, and he loved them. And this is God's love. God doesn't have to agree with people in order to love people, in order to help people. This is how Jesus showed us what God is like. It's one of the ways in which he made the invisible God visible. And here's the thing. As his image bearers, just like he was sending Jonah, and he wanted Jonah to not only be a recipient of his mercy, but to be a vehicle to extend his mercy to others. We're called to do the same thing as image bearers. That's why we say, oftentimes when we leave here, the last thing I'll say, you know, if, if I'm teaching on a Sunday morning is, go make the invisible God visible. What does that mean? Well, in this situation, it means go love people that you don't even agree with. Go move towards the crisis of the world. Bring your faith to bear on the crisis that the world is in. And the world may be responding to their crisis with things that, that they're doing everything they know to do. They're calling out to their gods. The world may be calling out to their gods. They may be doing things to try and address the crisis of the world that seems ridiculous. The modern day equivalent of throwing all the cargo overboard. And we're not sent to critique that. We're sent to bring love into that. That's one of the ways that we make the invisible God visible. This is what God is patiently and persistently trying to teach Jonah. This is actually why Jonah is included in Scripture. We talked about this last week, that, that Jonah is a very different prophetic book. We have lots of books that are labeled prophecy in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. But Jonah is very unlike them all because Jonah doesn't have a lot of words that God's speaking to other people. It's all the story of Jonah. It's about what God was trying to do in his servant. And that's why it's included. So this is the takeaway for us. He's trying to teach Jonah that his mercy and love was not just for Jonah and people like Jonah. It was for those unlike Jonah too. God wanted Jonah to carry that message to other people. 
whether it was to the violent Assyrians to the north or to the spiritually confused Phoenicians to the west, God wanted Jonah to carry that message. He wanted him to act that message and he wanted him to go. That's why the dot on Nineveh is green. God says, I want you to go. Move into the neighborhood. But Jonah was asleep in the boat while the sailors desperately tried everything they could do to change the crisis they were in. Again, instead of bringing his own faith, instead of bringing God's mercy and God's power, here he believes in the God over everything, and yet he's not bringing it to bear on their problem. He went to sleep, and he abandoned them to their crisis. And here's the thing. We're in a world right now that is facing crisis on seemingly every front. I mean, can you name a part of, of the world and, and, and that's not in crisis? These are times that make people spiritually open. Let me tease this out a little bit. We're going to see next week that the crisis that these Phoenician sailors were in led them to be spiritually open to Yahweh, which is a beautiful thing. Our world right now is in crisis. And these are times when people become spiritually open. People become open to hope in some sort of divine intervention that maybe they weren't when they were comfortable. You know, that, that old phrase that there's no, there's, what is, what's the word? There's no um, atheist in a foxhole. That, the idea of that is that when you're facing crisis, that you may, you're fearing for your life, suddenly you become open to divine help. The whole world is a foxhole right now. People are taking cover and they're, and they're wondering what's going to happen. And where's the church? I wonder, I wonder if we're bringing our faith to bear on the crisis of our world. I fear that oftentimes the church is more like Jonah than like Jesus. I want to I share two things this morning. One is... I'm going to drill down on this a little bit because this is Martin Luther King weekend. I want to drill down on this just a little bit. Uh, that, and I'm going to use some broad sweeping generalizations that may or may not be true of you. If they're not, don't take it. If they are, let it penetrate your heart. But I just want to speak to this specifically in the context of Martin Luther King weekend. And then I want to talk about some positive things because here's what I believe. One of the reasons that I love this church is this church aspires to be a church that's not asleep in the boat. We aspire to be a church that moves towards a world in crisis with the mercy and love of God. And, and, and we do that well in so many ways. And in fact, I, I, I met with our mayor a while back, mayor of Garden City, and asked him, I said, you know, we have a relationship with friendship. And, and I said, what's currently happening in our community that, that, uh, that is a crisis that you're not able to address? That if we could bring ourselves to help in that crisis, what, what could we do? And you know what he did? First of all, before he shared what we could do to help, he, he affirmed us. He said, your church is already doing so much. And, and, and previously, he's spoken to me about thanking us for the many programs that we have that are not just for our church. They are for our church, but they're for the community. He taught, I mean, there's our, our recovery program where people are dealing with hurts and habits and hangups and addictions. We have Celebrate Recovery and so many lives have experienced transformation through our recovery program. And he, and he, and he knows about our medical clinic where people that don't have insurance can come and get medical care. 
He knows about our food pantry and our feeding God's children. You know, today there'll be people that, that meet out at our Compassion Center and they'll go down to Julia Davis Park and feed people in the park for free and just, and just get to know people. That it starts with a, a, a hot meal. And I've had people, I've encountered people who said, oh, I know who the vineyard is. There was years of my life where you were the only hot meal I could count on every week. That's, that's feeding God's children. It happens today. It happens every Sunday. It's down in Julia Davis Park. People meet out at the Compassion Center, the, the, the warehouse, and then they go down together. You can do that today. We have our, our food pantry that feeds people on Wednesdays and Saturdays and is busy all week getting ready for Wednesdays and Saturdays. So I, I just say that to say, there's so many things about this church. We've, we've got all the things that we do for Whittier Elementary. And we're known for those things. The mayor knows us about those things. And he affirmed us. He said, you're already doing so much. Right? And so what I say today, I say from a place of like, we're doing well, but let's not rest on our laurels. I think there's more for us. And there's more crisis for us to move towards. And, and on this Martin Luther King week, and I'm thinking about, you know, we're in a, a world where there's so much crisis. There's economic upheaval. There's racial injustice. There's environmental disasters. There's racial injustice, not just in our nation, but worldwide. You look at what's happening in Ukraine and Russia right now. You look at what's happening in Myanmar. You look at what's happening in the African continent in various nations. Like there's racial injustice all over our world. That's a storm. That's a storm that our world is in. And people are, are crying out for help. People are doing what they know to do. Some cases, they're doing things that we may not agree with as a solution, but they're trying to move towards it with what they know. There's famines, there's food insecurity, there's soaring costs of housing, there's infectious diseases and pandemics. And sometimes we in the church, and I'm going to speak really broadly about, about the broad sweeping generalization. Sometimes we in the church, we sit back and instead of bringing creative solutions to the table and bringing our faith to the table, we sit back and we critique the solutions of others. And we criticize their understanding of the problem or their solutions. So this week I read a sermon preached by Dr. King in 1961. Like I said, it made me reflect on the recent moments we've had in our, our nation where we were seeking racial equity and justice. And I think about 2020 and, you know, there was the, the embers of, of injustice fanned into flame, the embers of racism fanned into flame after the murder of George Floyd and other expressions of racial injustice. And so much of the church, and specifically I mean the American church, and specifically I mean the white American church, refused to acknowledge there was a problem. And oftentimes we, instead of, instead of moving towards the problem with compassion, we, we argued about whether there was a problem. And instead of listening to our brothers and sisters of color and getting curious about what, what is it that people are saying? Why do people think there's racial injustice? And, and so many times the, the church responded with critiques or criticisms of, of either the solutions that people were offering or the way they were going about doing it. I wondered if it, in some cases we were asleep in the boat while those outside the church were doing the best they knew how to do. They were calling out to their gods. They were, they were acting on their beliefs and values and lifestyles, and we refused to help because we didn't agree with their beliefs and values and lifestyles. I wonder if we were following the example of Jesus or Jonah. That's the question for the hour. When it comes to these crises, we can sit back and we critique 
the way other people are trying to solve the problem, or we can bring Jesus' love and compassion, whether we agree with people or not. So much of the, of the white American church refused to enter into the, the areas of racial, the racial conversation back in 2020 because people didn't like some of the things that Black Lives Matter stood for. And the problem was people were doing what they knew to do. They were calling out to their gods. But did we call out to our God? Did we bring our faith to the table? This is what I read in Dr. King's sermon from 1961. This was preached to the Detroit Council of Churches. This was preached to Christians, right? In Detroit. And he, here's what he says. So he's talking about the three Greek words that are used for, the, for love. And so he's already talked about eros, which is basically romantic love. He's talked about phileo, which is friendship love. And then he says this. The Greek language has another word for love. It calls it agape. Agape is more than romantic love. Agape is more than friendship love. Agape is understanding redemptive goodwill for all men. Agape is an overflowing love, a spontaneous love, which seeks nothing in return. Theologians would say that it's the love of God operating in the human heart. When you rise to love on this level, you love all men, not because you like them, not because their ways, their ways appeal to you, not because they are worthful to you, but you love all men because God loves them. And you rise to the noble heights of loving the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. And I think this is what Jesus means when he says, love your enemies. And I'm so happy that he didn't say, like your enemies. Because it's kind of difficult to like some people. This, I love this. This is so honest. I'm so happy he didn't say like your enemies because it's, it's kind of difficult to like some people. Like is sentimental. Like is an affectionate sort of thing. And you can't like anybody who's bombing your home and threatening your children. It's hard to like a senator who's spending all of his time in Washington standing against all the legislation that will make for better relationships and that will make for better brotherhood. It's difficult to like them. But Jesus says, love them. And love is greater than like. Love is understanding, redemptive, creative goodwill for all men. And so Jesus was expressing something very creative. Not criticism, very creative. When he said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for those that despitefully use you. Actually, I want to, before I pause there, I want to read a, so, so that was in the middle of the sermon. He ends with this closing prayer. Maybe, maybe close your eyes as you listen to this. Oh God, this is Dr. King. Oh God, our gracious heavenly father, we thank thee for the inspiration of Jesus Christ and grant that we will love thee with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, that we will love our neighbors as we love ourselves, even our enemy neighbors. And we ask thee, O God, in these days of emotional tension, when the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, be with us. Be with us in our going in, out and in our coming in, in our rising up and in our lying down, in our moments of joy and in our moments of sorrow, until the day when there shall be no more sunset and no dawning. Amen.
I love that. You know what he called us to do? He called that group of churches, 1961, churches in Detroit. He said, wake up, you sleepers. Join in this. Don't wait for the world to come. We're longing. Our hope is that God is going to make all things new. And until that happens, we're supposed to bring our faith and the love of God to bear on the problems of this world. We're supposed to enter into the crises with creative love, not with a critique of whether or not they're doing it right. We're supposed to enter in. So I drilled down on something that's kind of corrective. Uh, let me end with something positive. So I shared with you that we talk, I talked to the mayor. In order to, so he affirmed, he said, your church is doing so many things. We're so grateful you're here. Which as a pastor, you want to hear that. You want to hear that if your church closed, it would make a difference. That your church is actually adding something to the community besides internally. And so it was great to hear that. But then he said this. He said, you know, like everyone else, like, like everyone else in, the, in this, the, the, the nation and the world, we're experiencing housing crisis. And he said, so, so whatever, if you can do anything to help with affordable housing. He said, you know, we, all of, our, all of our, uh, our workforce is being driven out of the valley because they can't, they can't afford to live in the places where they work. And so they're moving out as far west as they can afford, and then they can't afford to drive back and forth. And so we're losing our workforce. He's like, this is a big economic problem for everybody. And so he's like, if you can do something about workforce housing. So here's what I want to tell you. I don't have a, I don't have a plan right now, but I can tell you for the last several months, our pastoral team, our executive team, which is a subset of our pastoral team, and our finance council have been um, exploring what it would look like for us to partner with some other agencies who specialize in affordable housing to, to build some affordable housing, to add to the affordable housing in our community by using some of our property. So we have 22 acres. That's, that's exciting. We have 22 acres. Some of it you don't even know is ours because it's on the other side of Creation Street. Creation Street is the one that winds over here. On the other side of Creation Street, we have a wedge of land and we're looking at, can we, can we partner with some agencies to develop that into affordable housing? Now, I'm announcing that kind of, it, it's a little bit early for me to be announcing that because it's not in motion yet. But the reason I'm asking you today is because that's a crisis, this, that's the present storm. If you think about a storm that's hitting our community, that's a storm. And we don't want to be asleep in the boat. We want to be entering into it with creative solutions and with the love of Jesus and saying, God, let, God what can we do? Would you, this, this land that you gave us to steward, God placed us here. If you've been through our, our, our meet and greet, you've heard the story about God miraculously placing us on this property. We want to be good stewards of that. And so right now we're asking, is there a way that we can use that to help with affordable housing, to help with workforce housing? And so as we close today, what I wanna, I'd like to ask you to do one thing. I'd like to ask you to, to just pause right now and to pray. To pray for our finance council, specifically uh, our executive team. Michael Montford, our, one of our pastors, you know Pastor Michael. Um, Pastor Michael is, bears the most uh, responsibility in helping to guide this decision. And it's not clear. We've, we've looked at different models and we've kind, kind of gone back and forth and what we're saying is, God, would you, would you show us the right path that you want us to take? So I'm asking for prayer for our finance council, for our pastoral team, our executive team, specifically for Pastor Michael. Would you pray that we would have wisdom and know how to make a difference in this? 
how to bring our faith to bear. So the community isn't looking at us going, what are you guys doing? We're in crisis and you're asleep. We want to help. And so I'm just going to ask, I'm just going to give a couple minutes right here. We're, we're, we're closing the morning. This is how we're closing. Would you pray right where you're at? If, you're, if you came with other people and you want to just pray together for a few moments, you can do that. If, you'd, if you're more comfortable just praying silently by yourself, you're welcome to do that. But I'm, sometimes, you know, it's best to like not just say, I'll pray for you someday, but like do it right then. So would you pray? You pray and then I'll call us back. Heavenly Father, Creator God, we offer ourselves to you today. We thank you that you loved us when we were opposed to you. That you showed us a kind of love that wasn't based on agreeing with us, but was loving us into life change. And you've loved us extravagantly. God, I thank you for the, the DNA that is in this church. That I thank you for the, the way that, that Pastor Try and Nancy led this church. And so many who've gone before us, the previous generations of, of this corner of your pasture, who've moved in loving the community. God, would you never let that die here? And when our hearts start to grow cold in, in any of these areas, would you awaken us to your heart to move towards the, the storms of our world with your compassion, with your power, with your creative, uh, your creative life, your truth. But Lord, not to stand back and critique or to fall asleep in the boat, but to be with, with our neighbors, with our, uh, with our brothers and sisters. God, in this, in this area of housing, would you show us the way forward? This, with all the models and all the partnerships we could have, would you make the paths clear? And would you do something here that is for your glory and that is for the sake of others? We don't want a campus that's just about us. We want to steward what you've given us for the sake of our world, for your glory in ways that, that carry your image faithfully in our time, in our world. And so would you birth uh, a fresh agape love in us?
As we close today, um, we may have some words for prayer. If we do, we'll put them up on the screen. Um, but if you came this morning and you need prayer our, for anything, our prayer team would love to partner with you. We'd like to come alongside you. Our ministry team would like to pray with you. And so if you came this morning and there's a storm that's, that's hitting your life, we believe in the power of God to intervene and to give direction, to calm storms, to heal diseases. We believe that God is still at work. And so if you came this morning with, and you're in crisis, we would love to pray with you. And so I'm just going to close with that invitation. I'm going to say, as we as a church, as we think about this storm of affordable housing, I'd invite you to look at your own life and just consider what might God want you to move towards. We all have different spheres of influence. We have different gifts, different passions. What might God be inviting you to move towards to be a representative of his life and his love in a world that's in crisis? You do that? All right. Let's go make the invisible God visible. And don't forget, if you're a lady, we have a, a winter potluck out in uh, Heritage Hall beginning now. And if you're a guy, please take care of your children if you have them. Amen. Go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.